Well, good morning. Good to see all of you this morning, and thank you uh, to those of you who have served uh, up here on stage uh, for us and all the preparation and time that goes into that. I want to make one note as we um, think of the songs that we sing. I was struck by it this morning as heard so many of you singing with me on Speak, O Lord. Uh, we, one of the ways in which we gauge songs that we do here is the singability uh, of the people being able to sing the song instead of it being a song that's, you know, just maybe getting away from us and we're unable to keep up with or don't know when to come in. And, but the congregation being able to sing with one voice all together, uh, even in harmony, is a beautiful thing. And uh, really, every song that we do, we want to highlight uh, the main instrument, and that is our voices. Uh, and so we want intentionally to have songs that we sing where we are singing out. And I'm so thankful that so many of you do. Thank you for your good singing uh, this morning, songs with rich texts, and for that we are thankful for those who have written them. Would you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 15. We'll read up through verse 31 this morning as we continue walking through what is known as the Olivet Discourse. Matthew chapter 24. Sent out a few resources to uh, many of you in our church email that, was, that went out this, earlier this week. And uh, I think many of you, uh, some of you at least hopefully were able to have a chance to listen to D.A. Carson or read through some of the articles that were on the Olivet Discourse that might be helpful for uh, our time this morning, helpful for you at least in being able to contrast with what you're about to hear. So, Well, hopefully the sermon goes better than that joke did. It wasn't really too much of a joke, but nonetheless, if you would stand with me in the honor of reading God's word, we'll begin in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. God's word reads this. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand... Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say to you, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven, 
The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. You may be seated. Last week, we looked at the first 14 verses of Matthew 24. We saw how, like the disciples, we are all dying to know the details about the end. What will happen? When will it occur? How will it all play out? However, instead of details with specific dates and vivid descriptions of what will take place, Jesus gave his disciples warnings. Warnings that apply also to us in our day. To watch out for false imitations of Christ, antichrists. To be on the alert that people will try to deceive us about God himself. To know our theology well enough to not be rattled or taken in. Finally, last week, I said that the primary application for us as God's people is perseverance and not knowing how the future will play out. Jesus says that the one who endures until the end will be saved. He did not say that the one who solves the end time puzzle or the one with the most detailed and accurate prophecy charts will be saved. The gospel will go to all nations We, we will take the gospel to every tribe and tongue and nation. But those who endure, those who stand firm for the truth of the gospel, they will be saved. So then, we do not neglect our pursuit of holiness because we are trying to figure out the end times. Jesus says no one knows when he will return, not even the Son of God, and we can't quite understand that. So let us as God's people, those who have come to trust in Jesus alone for salvation, let us pursue a holy life that is deeply rooted in God and sound theology and faithful practice. So we are strong in the faith, able to help others come to know God and to be grounded firmly in their faith. One passage that came to mind in the in-between from last Sunday to this The week's text is Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 and beginning in verse 12, Paul writes, and I feel like in a way sums up this feeling within the already not yet. The Christ has already come, salvation is already ours, and yet the not yet, he's not yet come back again, and we're not yet fully glorified. And how do we walk in the midst of these things, keeping our eyes on Eternity. And Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Verse 17, Paul continues, Brothers, join in imitating me. 
Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame. And with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. All too often when we get in the conversation about eschatology, the end times, or what is Jesus saying in this passage, all too often we can be looking at details, plans, events. But brothers, as Paul writes, brothers and sisters, we are awaiting a savior. We are awaiting Jesus. How glorious that we can even say that. That we who were sinners and without hope now have a savior who is God himself, who came to redeem us and who is coming back for us. Too often we can cool our desires to Jesus' return because we're looking for an event to occur, say maybe in Israel, instead of looking forward to seeing Jesus return for us. It was Bart who said we should, Christians should read the Bible and the newspaper, have the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. All too often, I think the newspaper gets read more than the Bible does, even by Christians well-meaning but desiring to know when the end will come. We are looking for a sign, something that looks like what is in Revelation, so we can know if this is the end or not, instead of longing for Jesus and his return and remaining faithful until he comes. So this morning, as we look at our text, I've titled it Big Troubles and Even Bigger Promises. I don't often mention the titles of sermons, but I thought that was good enough to at least get a mention, so that's all that we'll say of it. Big Troubles, Even Bigger Promises. Big troubles, as you read this text, are ahead for the people of God. All humanity is facing massive tribulation and suffering. But Jesus gives us us even bigger promises. It's helpful when you find something that says, in case of an emergency, do this. In case of an emergency, here is your route out of the building. In case of an emergency, Break this glass. I always want to break that glass. (laughs) What's your definition of emergency? In case of an emergency, in case of a water landing, here's what's going to happen on an airplane. How many of us would have known that airplanes had inflatable slides that came out like that had we not heard from the stewardesses or read that safety card in the back of the seat in front of us? How many of you would have known if an airplane all of a sudden loses pressure that you are to put the oxygen mask on yourself before putting it on someone else. And yet, how many, maybe lives have been saved or people enjoyed bouncing on the inflatable raft that came out of whatever it is, a raft that comes out of the airplane and see the cool image on the back of that safety card? Because somebody thought ahead and prepared, in case of an emergency, here's what you ought to do, that your lives may be saved. Here in this text, Jesus is giving us sort of in case of an emergency, he's helping his disciples and those in the first century to know 
in case of an emergency. The emergency then is coming soon. But in case of emergencies, here is what God gives to us. He gives no specifics. And by that, while we say, oh, there's absolutely specifics, notice what we're given. Uh, We're given that there's going to be tribulation, that when this abomination of desolation happens, we should all run for the hills. I don't think there's a lot of specifics as exactly what that abomination of desolation means. All too often, we see these terms and wonder, well, is this earthquake it, or do we wait for another? Jesus doesn't give us a specific that says, in this day, in this city, this event will happen, and when that happens, you do this, and then the end will come at 18 seconds later. Well, he doesn't do that for us. Why? Because if Jesus had done that for us, what do we no longer need? Well, we don't need Jesus, do we? We don't need his word either. We can just take a screenshot of that passage, keep it on our phone in a in case of emergencies file in an app. I'm no longer needing Jesus to, Jesus, is, is this the end? Or Jesus, I trust in you, even though it seems as though all hell is breaking loose right now. Jesus, I don't know what's happening or what's going on in my life or in the world. Or, but this seems like a massive emergency. What do I do? I'm clinging to you. I'm utterly dependent upon you. We might not need that if all of a sudden we have every specific of every single day of what to do and what will happen and when he'll come. So he doesn't give us specifics. Thankfully not. Neither does he give us details of timing and exact signs, but he uses here a lot of prophetic language, a lot of language, and he references Daniel, but a lot of prophetic language mentioned and used in other passages in the Old Testament that often, as we mentioned last week, are speaking of the day of the Lord that is coming, that great and terrible day. And based upon how we're viewing the skyline or the imagery of the mountains, Which mountain is right in front of us? Which emergency are we seeing that might be at that time clouding the sky and the other mountains behind it? But he doesn't give us those things. Instead, he gives us signs, types of signs that will precede his coming. What he gives us is how to act in case of an emergency. He gives us warnings, things to watch out for, What types of signs will precede his coming? And that is incredibly kind. This morning, we will look at Jesus showing incredible kindness in giving advance warning of intense tribulation and how to flee. Jesus, kind in giving us in case of an emergency. Jesus, kindly giving advance warning of intense tribulation, big troubles are ahead. And Jesus gives even bigger promises. So number one, we have two points this morning, but the first one is Jesus kindly gives advance warning of intense tribulation and how to flee. We saw this as we looked in our text this morning. Verse 15 jumps right in. But if you remember from last week, the disciples have asked two questions. As Jesus says, this temple is gonna be destroyed and they're up there on the Mount of Olives, looking down on the city maybe, and Jesus says this temple will be destroyed. Not one brick will stand upon another, be completely leveled and gone. The disciples knowing something this big, 
to be leveled to the ground, it must be the end. So Jesus, two things, tell us when will these things happen? When will the temple be destroyed? And also, when will you come back? What is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? To them, it was one question. When the temple is destroyed, we know this is the end. But we also know, looking back at history, in AD 70, the temple was completely destroyed. And we also know that we still await a savior. And still, like John in Revelation 22, cry, come Lord Jesus, because he has not yet come again to take us home and usher in eternity. So as Jesus is desiring to answer the question for them, he's already looked at some of the warnings that he gave in the first few verses there. We looked at last week, but in verse 15, he begins to speak of the abomination of desolation. When you see this happen that is spoken of by the prophet Daniel, when you see someone like what's already happened within history, Antiochus Epiphanes has happened, when something happens that is of such desecration to the temple, then beware. When you see someone like that standing in the holy place, when you see things happening that are completely blasphemous, when you see warning signs that your city is about ready to be destroyed, flee to the mountains, run, get out, Don't wait and grab your stuff. If you're up on top of the house, don't come down and get your stuff. Just go. One author said, I think Jesus is alluding to the fact that they should just go from house to house on the rooftops. I thought that would be the coolest escape plan ever. Thank you, Jesus, for letting us know. In case of emergency, jump from roof to roof and get out of town. Love it. Don't wait. Jesus tells them not exactly when, but he tells them what to do, what to watch out for, what's coming. And what's coming is going to be devastating, horrible, no good, painful suffering. The afflictions that they're going to face, that the Israelites are going to face, are going to be so intense that they will want to immediately leave their homes, forget all their earthly goods, and escape with their lives and the lives of their families. The abomination of desolation is an expression that recurs in Daniel several times with some variation in its wording. Most scholars agree that there is a reference to the desecration perpetrated, as I mentioned, by Antiochus Epiphanes when he built an altar to Zeus in the temple, and he offered pigs and other unclean animals on that altar to Zeus in the temple as sacrifices. Talk about major desecration, blasphemy, horrible acts happening in God's house by someone else desiring to worship a false god. When you see something like this happening, flee, leave now. The need for flight is urgent. It is better to lose one's portable possessions than to lose one's life. And so there's an immediate call to leaving, to fleeing. Jesus warns this is going to happen, and when it does, get out of town. Don't stand around and collect your bags. In case of an emergency, flee the city. Get out. Grab your families. Women, there's a hope even of the child or one, a nursing child who is with you. If you're obviously going to take that child with you and pray that your flight does not happen in the winter or on a Sabbath because that'll make it all the more difficult. But no matter what, still flee. Even if it's on the Sabbath, even if it's in winter, When this occurs, you get out. 
and get to safety. Great tribulation, as never before has been experienced, is going to happen, and you need to flee. Jesus, in his kindness, allows the disciples and those who are listening to know this is going to happen, and you need to leave. Your city will be destroyed. Your people will be overtaken. There will be sites of the temple that you don't want to see, and you need to get out. They're wondering, Jesus, what's going to happen when you return? What's going to happen at the end of the age? What's going to happen when the temple is destroyed? When will these things occur? And instead of focusing on the details of a date and a time, Jesus instead kindly says, when it happens, you get out. It's coming, and I'm going to warn you in advance. Jesus is kind. Jesus lets them know ahead of time what to do in case of an emergency. He recognizes also in verse 22 that the difficulties and the tribulation that they face will, as it says in verse 21, has never been seen before from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. There's a lot of double negatives at the end of that verse 21. Translators give it the best shot that they can, but it seems as though what's going to happen, what happened in AD 70, what happens maybe in every generation, you're going to face something that is absolutely tragic, horrible tribulation. But them, something that had not been seen since the beginning of the world, later, a tribulation, a difficulty, suffering that has never been seen since the beginning of the world and never will be. When difficulty comes, God is not commanding us now to run and get out. Okay, like you have a tsunami pack. When the tsunami happens, when you hear the sound, you grab your pack and you just run to the hills. Like all of a sudden we're hiding stuff and that's not what Jesus is calling us to do. But what I think we can take from this is the kindness of Jesus who warns ahead of time. We see this all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus, who speaks here in Matthew 24, this is nothing new necessarily. God has always spoken by means of his prophets to warn his people of impending danger. He does this from the very beginning, doesn't he? It's not just that a tribulation is going to happen that's going to be so horrible, you're going to wish you were never born. But remember back in the garden with Adam and Eve? There was intense tribulation, wasn't it? Like there had never been ever before since the foundations of the world. What was it? It was punishment for sin. Adam and Eve in the garden are living in a place of perfection, and all of a sudden, they chose to make themselves lawmakers instead of law keepers. They chose to be God and dethroned God himself by merely taking and doing what God had told them not to, and in so doing, all of a sudden, immediate tribulation and difficulty, judgment came upon them. But God warned them it would. If you eat of it, you will surely die. He told them what would happen, and they still did it. All throughout the Old Testament, God has warned his people by means of its leaders and its prophets. If you do this, tribulation and difficulty, judgment will come upon you. It's never because God just all of a sudden says, I just don't like you anymore. I just don't like this city. I don't like that temple that Herod built in Jerusalem. So I'm just going to level it, and I'm going to bring in these other people to do so. It's always as a result of sin. And God's people had strayed far from him. 
so too have every generation since. We can see even now in our own culture, in our generation, we feel like this is the worst it's ever been, right? We mentioned that last week. Every generation believes we are living in the end times. This is it. This is the worst it's ever been for now like 200 generations. We're saying the exact same thing. Well, generations 40 years, you do the math a lot. We're saying the exact same thing. Man, if God was going after his people in the Old Testament, he should be coming after us even now. God is kind in his warning. Because of your sin, judgment will come. Because of your sin and your fleeing after other idols, judgment will come and it will be a tribulation of such you have never seen before. So flee. Turn away from those idols. Brothers and sisters, don't even let it tempt you. But turn from those idols, turn from your sin and run to Christ. Jesus in his kindness warns ahead of time of impending danger, tribulation that is coming. And secondly, as we look at the next few verses, Jesus reveals that he will come again. And it will be for all to see that his coming will cause cosmic upheaval. You see at the end of verse 22, a few verses before we look at this cosmic upheaval, verse 29 through 31 But in verse 22, Jesus is continuing to speak of his kindness towards them, of warning them that all human life would be lost if he wouldn't have cut short the judgment that was coming. There's going to be people who are trying to trick you. People that are saying, look, Jesus is here. Here is the Christ. False prophets, false signs, people who are pointing to a blood moon in 1986. Jesus is coming in 1988, and it's going to be a blood moon. It's going to be this. Don't believe it. All of that stuff, every one of them has been proved wrong. Don't believe that stuff. See, I've told you beforehand, Jesus says, verse 25, in his kindness, he's let us, warned us ahead of time. And if someone says, verse 26, he's in the wilderness, he's in an inner room, he's in a place private, only we know where he's at. Don't believe him. Don't go. Jesus is coming in such a way that there will be no, nobody who misses it. It's going to be such a cosmic upheaval. He begins in verse 29 to speak of when the Son of Man comes. It will be, as he says in verse 27, like lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west. You know, lightning. When it comes, all of a sudden, especially in the dark, it lights up the sky mentioned this before, I grew up in the Midwest where we had real thunderstorms. Thunderstorms that all of a sudden make you pray again. Jesus, if I didn't mean it before, I want to be saved now because this looks horrible. I feel like I'm going to die. It seems like the end because of the lightning and the thunder and how close it is on top of our house. Scare us every time. But it lights up the whole sky. And as that lightning comes and it shines from the east into the west, there will be no doubt, no mistaking that this is the coming of the Son of Man. It won't be a secret. It won't be a few people who are in on the know. All of a sudden, when he comes, everyone will see. Verse 29, Jesus reveals that when he comes again, it will be for all to see that his coming will cause cosmic upheaval. Jesus is kind and warning ahead, and Jesus here reveals also that my coming will be public. And look at what it will do. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, 
The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of heaven will be shaken. These are not new phrases that are given. This is not the very first time we've ever seen anything like this. Uh, Take in your Bibles. I wasn't planning on going here, but real quick, look at Acts chapter 2. See, I wasn't planning. I didn't have a hangy down thing stuck in there. Acts chapter 2, and it says, verse 16. I'm going to start reading. You'll find it here in just a second. Verse 16, but this is what was uttered by the prophet Joel. This is where folks have just had, the Holy Spirit has come on them. They're speaking in tongues. This is what was uttered by the prophet Joel. This is what was uttered. Verse 17, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Okay, that's exactly sort of what's happening. People are speaking in language they have never studied before. Verse 18, even on my male servants, my female servants, in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Verse 19, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and the signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So you have Luke writing in Acts chapter 2, verse 16 and following, sees what's happened where the Spirit has come and these tongues of fire over their heads. They're speaking in languages they've never been able to study before. People are hearing them in languages they've, that's their natural language that this person doesn't speak. This is incredible. And Luke says, this is what was uttered by Joel. This is the fulfillment of what Joel spoke of. And you read it and you go, yeah, but there's no, Luke doesn't say the moon turned to blood or these, all of these events happened. Often in the Old Testament, you have this language of cosmic upheaval that occurs where all of a sudden we see all of the elements in the sky being destroyed, darkened, falling. Uh, Isaiah chapter 13 mentions, uh, verse 9, we'll mention a few of these, but Isaiah chapter 13, verse 9, behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and destroy its sinners from it. Judgment, for the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, The moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. It was an oracle concerning Babylon in Isaiah chapter 13. Here comes this wicked nation. And in its destruction, God is speaking of these luminaries in the sky and what will be affected Notice also Ezekiel chapter 32 concerning the overthrow of Egypt. Ezekiel chapter 32, I will drench the land, verse 6 begins. I will drench the land even to the mountains with your flowing blood and the ravines will be full of you. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens, make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. You have all of these events occurring. Similar Old Testament passages, Amos chapter 8, Micah chapter 3. 
This is a standard way of prophetic expression, a way of speaking within prophetic passages in the Old Testament. Never did it mean the literal destruction of the physical universe, the literal blotting out of the sun in its light, or the moon being brought down, or the stars falling, but rather it meant the overthrowing or downfall of a nation or civilization. Even now in our own language, we recognize we have a phrase that says, we ascribe it often to a, a bully, a kid who's about to fight someone else. And we say some, the bully, we say, says something like, I'm going to punch out your lights. What is the bully intending to do? He's not intending to do anything, actually. He just wants to say something and get your lunch money. But if he has to resort to violence, he might push you down. Not that he knock out your lights, no. He didn't, but his intention was to scare you to give him his lunch, your lunch money or whatever it is he's desiring as an 11-year-old boy on the playground. But he uses a phrase like, I'm going to punch out your lights. We look at these phrases that are given. God coming with great judgment and wrath and speaking in a way towards wicked nations or in destruction for sin and judgment on his own people of a way that these things are going to happen and it's going to be cataclysmic. This cosmic upheaval that everyone will see, that everyone will know about. And using such language like even the stars will fall, the mountains will crush you. All of a sudden, the moon and the sun will no longer give light or shine. You have this language that is given that often we look at and we see doesn't always mean that exactly the language used in prophetic literature or apocalyptic literature, often used with symbols and signs, but one that isn't intending that we exactly see that the whole universe is going to be destroyed. Imagine if the sun is darkened completely, the universe would crumble. I'm not a scientist, but I'm pretty sure that we need the sun in every moment of our day. If all of a sudden these things actually occurred, there would be nothing left. And Jesus, God speaks through the Old Testament and says that these things have happened. Luke wrote in Acts chapter 2 and said this did happen. When they spoke in tongues, these things will happen. This is the sign. So how do we speak of it when Jesus comes and says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Is God going to destroy all of creation? Of course not. Because for all of eternity, we're going to live in the new heavens and the new earth. Why is he going to destroy it? The heavens in Revelation come down to earth. And all of a sudden, we see God coming down to dwell with man and the good creation that he has made. But God is speaking in such a way of cataclysmic events that all of a sudden jar us to be able to see the judgment that is coming. And if that's going to come, if literally all the earth is going to crumble and fall apart, then whether you're a Christian or not, you're all of a sudden saying, in case of an emergency, one, Christian, do business with God. Repent of your sins, follow after him, and share the gospel with those who are lost. Lost person, you need to repent of your sins for the very first time because hell is coming now, right? Judgment is coming. You got to repent. Time is short. You have no idea when it will come. But when it comes, watch out. This is what it will look like. This is what we're talking about. 
Don't play around with this. Jesus is kind and sharing, warning you ahead of time. And God here is revealing that when he comes, it will be of such cosmic upheaval. Literally in this way, it's going to be worse than this. His judgment and his wrath, when it comes on sinners, will be far worse. You, they will have wished that merely the sun would have been darkened or the, sun, or the stars would have fallen and the universe would have come apart. They will be praying for mercy. It will be much worse. And so Jesus in his kindness lets his disciples know there's danger coming right now. AD 70, huge event, massive one for all of Israel's nation, for their history, where Jerusalem is sacked and the city is in ruins. But there is great tribulation that is coming for all of us, barring the grace and mercy of God. So brothers and sisters, we come before God who is coming again. He speaks, verse 30, there will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. God loves giving signs to his people, doesn't he? All the way back in Genesis, we see the sign of the covenant that God will never again destroy the earth by a flood, and he gives a sign of this promise that is a rainbow in the sky. God gives a sign to his people, the church even now will celebrate today a sign of baptism that marks one. You are mine. A sign of the covenant that is given as we take regularly of the elements of the Lord's table. A sign that says, this is the body and the blood of Jesus that was broken and shed for me. Remember this. Do this as often as you gather together and remember his death until he comes. Here's a reminder, a sign of these things will happen. Such cosmic upheaval in ways we cannot fully understand that will come and the nations will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The nations are going to mourn, and yet the Son of Man comes, and when he does, he sends out his angels to gather the elect so that while the nations are mourning, the elect are saved that there are those who are redeemed from out of it, even though the nations will grieve the coming of the Lord. The Son of Man will appear in the clouds. You have both, I think. One where Jesus is warning of impending events that will happen in their lifetime. And Fred will get to that next week. Lucky Fred. I said, I'm sorry, this is the text that we're in, in for, and you get it. Uh, the Lord knows. And so... The, that generation, there's going to be these events that happen, but it's also speaking, I think, to every generation. There's going to be great difficulty and tribulation and suffering that happens, and we continue to look to the one who is coming, so believers in every age long for Jesus to come again, to make all things right, to dwell with us forever. So we, as we mentioned before, say with John in Revelation 22, as Jesus says, surely I am coming soon, John says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Knowing that as we see Jesus here in this passage makes it clear by multiple times speaking of the elect, says, and those elect will be gathered. They will be gathered from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. There will not be one who is missed. We will cover the whole globe and there will not be one who is left out of the elect, but the nations, those who are not Christians, 
those who have not seen, in case of an emergency, the end is nigh, repent. Those who are not yet Christians are not looking forward to the return of Jesus. They are not looking forward to the return of Jesus. Excuse me, why? Why is someone who doesn't believe in Jesus not looking forward to his return? (laughs) Because if Jesus actually returns, then that means their view of how things would turn out in the end is very wrong. They didn't believe in him while they were living. So the very last person, someone who is not a Christian, wants to see coming back in the sky at the end of all time is Jesus. And Jesus states why in Matthew 25, one chapter from where we are now. He states there that the Son of Man, when he comes in his glory, will separate all peoples into two groups. To the one group, he will say, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And to the other group, he will say, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So let us, as we look at the kindness of Jesus warning in advance, as we look at Jesus revealing when he comes, there will be cosmic upheaval, the likes of which we've never could have imagined. Let us prayerfully long for and faithfully wait for the coming of Jesus. Let us also pray for those who stand outside of Christ even now. That they would come to faith in the Son of God and be able to rejoice instead of mourn when they see him coming again. Big trouble is coming, but Jesus gives even better promises. Would you join me as we pray? Our Father, we are so thankful for texts like this this morning. All too often, these texts become extremely technical And we can lose sight of the Son of Man who stands at the center of it, speaking to his disciples, comforting them as he warns them of the danger that is ahead, of the threat of tribulation that comes, but the promises that he is coming again. Father, in every generation, that has been incredibly helpful. And even this morning, we find such balm for our souls, such comfort for our fears. And in our weakness, what we need is not a timeline, a date, an hour, but what we need is Jesus. One that we can look to, the Son of Man who has gone in to death itself and come out victorious. What we need is Jesus himself, who never leaves us and will never forsake us. The one who warns us is the one who is coming again to take us home. Father, our hope and our trust is in him. And so we await a savior, Jesus. Our inheritance is in heaven from which we await his arrival. So Father, would you continue to keep us faithful as your people? desiring and pursuing intentionally, even this morning, as the sun rose this morning and gave us a new day. So, Father, your grace gives us a brand new day even this morning. Would you grant us grace? 
to intentionally pursue you, to live a holy life, to desire to be faithful to you until you come again. And would you keep us resting and trusting in you and your grace until we see you face to face? Father, would you grant us grace this morning? And would you open the eyes of those who may be in this room who do not know you as their Lord and Savior, would you open their eyes to their sin and their need for Jesus? Would you help them to see that judgment will come? Their sins will be punished. They will stand to give an answer before you. And Father, would you open their eyes to the beauty of the gospel that says there is good news apart from themselves that is found in the Son of Man who came and gave his life for them. And would you grant them newness of life even this morning? And Father, would you also bless us as we get to celebrate the life that you have given to three brothers and sisters who will desire to go through the waters of baptism in just a few minutes to declare, I am Christ's. You have marked me, and I desire to follow you all the days of my life. Father, we ask your blessing on the remainder of our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.